Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Uh, this week is part two of my conversation with Walter Guzzi. Uh, if you missed part one, I highly recommend you go back and check that out, uh, partially because it, it was a, just a really good conversation that I had with him, but also because you might be a little lost here in part two. He, he kind of refers uh, back to some of the things that he had spoken about in the uh, previous portion of our, our conversation. Um, in this installment, Wally talks about the end of World War II and, and coming home from the war and uh, working afterward, uh, what he did for work. It's a, uh, just an extension of, of the fascinating conversation with, with a fascinating man. Uh, you've already heard my intro about Wally if you've listened to part one and you know how great he is and how much I, I enjoyed our talk. So let's just get into it. Uh, please enjoy part two of my discussion with Walter Guzzi. Russians, we all shook hands, like I said, you know, and we drank some of the wine, and, and very cordial. And that evening, the townspeople, because the town was, uh, I recall the name of the town was Dresden, the townspeople threw a dance for us. They got a music, they got some music together, and they we had plenty of wine as far as uh, re refreshments was, so, and plenty of girls, that's for sure. And uh, so we had a good time, we, you know, danced with the girls, and well, the Russians stood and watched us because they, they didn't know how to do anything, you know. <laughs> they, I don't know if they knew how to treat a, you know, a girl or anything like that. But we had a great old time with the girls. And the war in Asia was still going on. And the lieutenant called me over and he says, uh, well, he says, you're, you're Polish, that's not too far away from, uh, from being, uh, you know, from Russian or something. Maybe you can understand. Go over to that commissar over there, that, that Russian, he says, find out what their plans are, if any, if you, if, what, what their plans are now. Are they uh, going to stay here or are they going to be shipped to uh, the Asian theater because that was still going on. And uh, word came that as far as they were concerned, we, the commissar, once he took over, they got rid of the, the troops, you know, and uh, and we just settled down at that at that point there because there were barracks over there that uh, the Germans must have built uh, for you know for, for their own troops. And I'll never forget that I, I took over one of their what we call bunkers, you know. It was the. Uh, well, the bunker was was actually a concrete that they had, like on the you know, at, at Omaha Beach. Mm -hmm. At the, 
And I said, oh boy, a chance to sleep. Yeah, a chance to sleep. I went and lay down on that, and when I got something, something woke me up. And, and holy Christ, I had cooties all over me. So they had to send me to a delousing unit. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. To a delousing unit. Yeah. To get rid of the, you know, to get out, get rid of the louse in, the, in my uniform, as well as myself. The, the, the delousing unit was just a pull chain with water up on top, you know, and you washed yourself that way. Harassing, so <laughs> very, very, very primitive. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we had fun while while we were at that day, and we stayed there more or less because uh, we were. Uh, it was at a crossing point uh, that uh, we settled down our unit. And there was a crossing point between Czechoslovakia and uh, and Germany. So uh, our, our company was was given a duty of manning that crossing point, seeing that uh, people well we let people go by you know but they had to show papers all the time. So, uh, and we got to know the townspeople because they let us sleep in their home because they had nice soft beds and everything, you know. So uh, we got along with the townspeople, even though they were German Sudetenland people. But we got along with them real good because they had to cross into Germany in order to go to church, you know. So... They, we just we just let them do you know what they wanted to do and we didn't guys they we checked very carefully see if they had the proper prayer if they were possibly prisoners possible prisoners of war but uh, we were at this place for quite some time and that's where we slipped <clears throat> for the duration of the war, more or less. And just did the guard duty at the, you know, at that crossing point. And then squads took, took you know, one week at a time. We didn't uh, let it just one, one unit do the whole thing themselves, you know. We let them, we always took turns. The squad had four you know, four squads to a company, so to speak. So we took ter- ter- took turns on, on the thing, but the, the the people let us sleep in their beds. You know, they I think they were glad to see us, yeah. and what rations that we used to get, <coughs> we used to give to them. You know, because we had plenty. K ration, yeah, and we didn't. We were sick and tired of K rations <laughs> already, anyway. <laughs> so uh, we gave it to them, and 
they used to at least fix it up a little for the little for them and a little for us. So we got along with the people real well. What the heck? No men around. Really? They were really glad to see us men, believe me. Yeah. I'm sure you wanted to just go home. You, well, you, you couldn't. The war was still going on in in Asia. Yeah. And we were, I think our unit was being held enough just to bide our time to see where we were. If we if we were going to get shipped out there, <clears throat> but thank God we didn't, because that that, that agent the theater was a hellhole. At least uh, German, when he saw that the the game was up, you know, he surrendered. His thoughts was, where the hell should I uh, be a be a hero? <laughs> And see, there's no chance of, of a fight here. So he just too, threw up his hand and said, Kamerad, okay, Kamerad, come over here, you know. So we took him as prisoners, uh, and then we used them for cleaning up some of the towns that were badly shot up and all that. Because there was, there was sometimes the little towns we left alone if they, if they hauled out a white flag and hung it over their window. And as we ended, as we were approaching the town, we saw the white flag. We didn't watch that. Uh, we didn't bomb the hell out of it or anything. We just went right through it, and that's it. But if there was no white flag, and if a shot was fired from there. Then we just call our artillery and, and give them the, the lo location and so forth and just bob the hell out of it, that's all. But most of the townspeople, they, they know the jig was up, so they put the white flags out there and, and we had no problem going through and their little town was spared. And every one town that we took over it was, the, it was a pretty good, I would say, a, a good first time based on the uh, little towns, you know. And as we were going through it, in one, in one uh, bedroom, so to speak, they must, they must have just butchered a cow. In the inside the house, would you believe it? Wow. And uh, so what I did is, so when I saw that, uh, and the other guys that were with me, my squad, we cut out the best portions, you know, of the cow, that's the steak area, and we uh, cut that out, and we took it to the our cook and says, just make sure our unit gets their share of the steaks out of this cow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, uh, like I say, we took took care of that, took our, our portion, and and we had a good meal for quite a few days. You must have been heroes to your unit. Oh, oh, they loved us. Yeah, <laughs> you know, with that, you know, with all that meat. 
<laughs> instead of those K rations. Yeah. <laughs> Three boxes. And how we used to heat up our raw. Like there was a little can, for instance, would be a little can of sausages, you know, in the unit with little crackers. And so we used to puncture a hole about three or four inches from the bottom of the uh, container, the K-ration container that held all these little bits of food in it. And, uh, and since this K-ration was really, it was waxed real good, we'd light a fire and place it, place it in the ground and uh, as it, as the fire, you know, was heating slowly up, the wax and all that. In the meantime, we opened up the can of either pork sausages or some other kind of meat, mostly spam, you know. And uh, we'd open up that can, and we used to heat our food on that while that while the thing was, you know, heating up, and. We had hot food all the time. <laughs> so you, you more or less you uh, what they call what they used to call uh, called GI ingenuity, you know. You, you you learn how to survive. You learn how to survive. And a lot of times. Uh, I was the old man in the outfit. I was 27 years old, you know. And I was the old man. They, they used to call me the old man. Because <laughs> I was getting 18, 19 year old kids, you know, yeah. into the squad. So, they used to say, you watch him and you'll live. Because I was careful. I was careful. And for, for and for living out the the whole war, more or less, you know, the ETO, the uh, there there are lieutenant put in for a bronze star for me, see, so I got the decoration of bronze star for being careful and living through the war because uh, <clears throat> I know that one year one incident that I just happened to remember we were pinned down in a forest and one of the, one of the worst things that can happen to you is being a, in a forest when you're getting shelled because when a when a shell hits that tree up on the top, you know, top of the tree, it just splinters into little shell fragments and scatters all over. So the first thing that you did, which I did, you do with your uh, uh, your uh, my helper, so to speak, you know, the two of us dug a hole about two feet deep, and uh, 
Mouth cuts some branches up from the pine trees, you know, on the on the ground, and that was our foxhole more or less. So when we were getting shelled, I, I and he used to get, crawl into her because we covered the the top with the with these uh, boughs from the pine trees, and just kept a little kept a little opening where we could slip slip in and out easily. And uh, while the shelling was going on, you just crawled in there and, and stayed there until it stopped. And I noticed one guy, one one of the machine gunners were, was maybe about 50 yards away from me. Instead of playing smart and getting into his hole while the shelling was going on, he was more like a, I, I thought he was a forward uh, observant for the Germans, you know. He was outside his foxhole and he's looking around like that. And sure in hell, a tree burst came and and he got hit with some uh, shrapnel and just killed him. Now that was a stupid mistake. And he killed him, that's what's it. When all he had to do was crawl on his foxhole and and be safe. So you had to use your head all the time if you wanted to survive. So. And what was, what was the name of your uh, helper, the tripod? Uh, tripod helper. Yeah. His first name. First name. Was, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. Okay. Because you know they transfer, they get transferred and oh, things okay. like that. So yeah. You know, after the war, you never stayed together. Yeah. Either you got killed or, or uh, you stayed. Yeah. If you stayed, if you stayed, why? But the guy that was carrying the tripod was a little Jewish boy from the Bronx, New York, and. <laughs> I don't know how he ever carried that tripod because that was no, you know, no easy thing to carry over his shoulder, and then carry your carbine rifle together with that. And I, to, to the machine gunner, which I was, I carried the gun, and uh, I had a forty-five Luger strapped to the side there in a holster and that was my weapon so to speak so but they took that Luger away from me you know after the end of the war really and when, goofy me I, I could have had a half a dozen of those those guns you know handguns because we were in a town where they made them. Mm. It was the P-38s, I think they called them, where they made them. And I didn't take a one because the, the captain, or the, ca yeah, the captain warned our units, all those units that <clears throat> when you're at the end of the war, if you've got more than one gun, they're going to confiscate it anyway. The, the, the army's going to confiscate it. So I figured, why the hell should I carry a... So I kept one that I found in a home 
that we took, a town that we took over and as we were going through the home, you'd search all the rooms and everything, you know, and, and I found this little handgun, which I kept, which they let me keep because that was the only one that, that was the only one that they, uh, that I had, so they let me keep it. And I gave it to my brother-in-law at the end of the war for a war souvenir, which he, which he was in the war too, but he, he uh, was stationed uh, in uh, Puerto Rico. And, uh, and while he was there, my other brother-in-law was uh, killed in uh, Bougainville, in the Europeans, and I mean the uh, Asian, uh, he was killed by a Japanese sniper. And, uh, and as soon as he was killed, his, his brother, why they immediately moved my brother, brother-in-law that was in Puerto Rico into and, and the States. And he was in the States all the rest of the time. They let him survive, more or less, you know, because they wanted to have one member of the family to prop, propagate or whatever you want to call it, you know. So he he spent the rest of the time then in, uh, in Florida. But, so I gave him that little gun. Then, then I didn't. I had a, I had an Italian carbine which I carried along with me, and one of the places that we used to vac vacation all the time was a town way up in the northern Minnesota, and this guy was a gun fancier. So the first year he showed me his gun case and all that. It was quite impressive. So I told him, I said, I got an Italian carbine. The next time I come up, I'll give it to you. And I gave it to him. <laughs> Shouldn't have. I should have kept it as a souvenir. But I gave it to him. He, he, he appreciated it more than I did, you know. Did you, did you keep any souvenirs? Oh, yeah, there's... Uh, you know, those real German banners with the swastika on them, and they hung down. They were maybe 20 feet long. I got one of those that I sent home, because you were allowed to send stuff home. So I, uh, that was one of my souvenirs. And then they... Uh, in, in one town, there was a guy that was a, like a meister, like a mayor, you know, of the town. And he had a real fancy uh, uh, dagger, so to speak. Chrome-plated and everything, which I gave him, uh, which I kept. And also from an SS German that was dead, laying on the ground uh, while I stepped over him. Uh, he, on the side, he had a uh, 
a little dagger, and it had the insignia, the swastika, you know. So I took that off of him and put it in my pocket and I kept that to as a souvenir. Well, that's about the only thing that I kept. Uh, the rest of the stuff wasn't, wasn't any good from what I could see, you know. So those things I kept and I brought them home and <clears throat> I got them to this day. So when when did you come home? Oh, when, uh, going home, that was a, uh, you had to have points. Points were, were given as longevity, as one, one way of getting points and uh, if they were, if you were, had a purple heart, you were given extra points there. And uh, there was various ways that you could accumulate points, but I didn't get, I, I didn't accumulate the points. I was till the very end. Uh, so, at the end of the war, we ended up like I told you in this town of Dresden, and after, uh, after a while. Let's see. Oh, oh yeah. Then uh, while we were doing this uh, border crossing duty, the army had uh, excursions to various places. That's the war's over, you know. Except in the Asian per uh, theater. But as far as the ATO was concerned, there was no war going on. So they gave you know, excursions to, to different parts of Europe. You could have gone to France, uh, to Paris, or you could have gone to Switzerland. Who the hell wants to go to France? Not me. So I chose Switzerland. So the army took a bunch of us and dropped us at the border of Switzerland and France. And, and uh, then the uh, guide, a Swiss guy, took us over and started showing us Switzerland, which was like night and day. There's your, you know, Europe all torn up, bombed buildings. And then, then you go into Switzerland, a beautiful, clean town and everything. So they, they took, some of the guys went on their own because they were going after girls, that's what they were looking for. And, but us, the three of us more or less st stuck together. And uh, so we had a guy more or less that took us all over. Uh, we slept in the best hotels. And uh, they had the best of meals, you know, and the white sheets. <laughs> that was a that was a luxury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had a very nice two-week tour. We went up to what they call the Jungfrau, as to the tip of the uh, Alps, more or less. The uh, trolley takes you up to a certain point, 
and then from that point on you more or less make it to the, what they call the summit then. And then there you get the, uh, you could see, you know, everything before you. You're right up more or less at the tip of the Alps. So it was very, very picturesque and very nice in Switzerland, that's for sure, for two weeks. And like I say, we slept between white sheets. What a, what a nice thing to do. Yeah. So for the, for the points for you to be able to go home, how, how many points did you have? Oh, I didn't have enough points, no. Okay. I was a... I was a, just a GI. Just a GI. There was a lot of guys that uh, uh, I was just glad that uh, I wasn't uh, more or less. Picture this: one guy going over to the uh, to the Asian theater. I didn't want to go there. I figured hell, I made it through this one if I. I don't want to go to another one, you know, because I'm sure the hell my number will be up then for sure, you know. So, but I was lucky they uh, they put me in the uh, worst, or they, oh yes, I was transferred after I, I come back from uh, my Switzerland tour. They broke up the, the division, you know, I mean the company. And uh, I was sent to, what the hell was the name of that town? Oh, Regensburg. And uh, they looked over my records and found that I was uh, a dispatcher. And uh, so what they did was transferred me into the engineering unit, gave me an office, and made me a dispatcher from, uh, for the Army, where I had charge of all the road, road and bridge building equipment. So uh, I had tags made out and uh, so I could keep track what was out, what was in and all that. And that's always my job. <clears throat> for, for almost a year, let's see that from, uh, yeah, oh, for about four or five months I had that job. And hell, in the morning I, I heard an old sergeant blow his whistle and all the little GIs, you know, falling out, you know, like you like you do in the army, yeah. falling out for for inspection, more or less. I don't know. And all I did is I opened up the shed, the curtain, and looked at those poor guys. <laughs> <laughs> I had a nine to five job, you know. <laughs> so so I had pretty good. I had a German interpreter. For you know, to uh, discuss with the German contractors and so forth that needed equipment and 
why they needed well he was the guy that translated everything for me so who could live better nine to five job well so I had a real good job really nice and then in the evening the, the army had a got a got a hold of a big hall dancing hall and they ran dances with nice bands there you know the army unit bands all nice music and everything plenty of girls Jesus those they crawl all over you <laughs> <laughs> so plenty so in the evening if you wanted to have you know some drinks you went over to this hall I, you always traveled in pairs if you did you know because you never know so I and the other guy my buddy we sit that sit at a table and it wasn't long before there would be a fraulein, you know, sitting down with you and all that. So you dance with them and, and have a little, have some beer. I don't know, beer was practically for nothing, you know. Because they had breweries all over the place. So we spent, spent that time pretty nice. Didn't have to stand, you know, stand was that like those guys in a out in the street or in a six o'clock or seven o'clock I don't know what o'clock in the morning a nine to five job you were somebody finally you know <laughs> yeah that was fun that was a good that was a good part of life. And you said that was about four or five months? That you I was in that job from, uh, what you could say, uh, May, not May, but uh, when I got back from uh, from that tour of uh, Switzerland, the lieutenant called me over, he says, well, well, it looks like it's goodbye. The, engi the engineers are in tour of a dispatcher and they looked up your records and you were one of them at one in, in civilian life. So I guess you're it. So then they shipped me to Regensburg. That's, and that's where I stayed the rest of my time there until sometime in, uh, well, yeah, the beginning of December, I start but so getting, getting rid of, of all my duties and everything else because I had GIs there working for me also. I got, and also the, the German interpreter got said goodbye to them and I, Beginning of December, like I said, I start making my way down to the Cherbourg coast, where once I got there, I saw a big, beautiful aircraft carrier called the Wasp at Harbor, and that was going to be my home. 
or was going to take my take me home. I had five thousand other guys, and uh, but as long as I had my stripes, I didn't have to do any duty. God forbid, you know, that you do duty, you got somebody, <laughs> somebody, <laughs> the lonely GIs, you know, <laughs> to do the KP and all that stuff. Because the ship had to be kept clean all the time, so, so all the. I just. It was it was like a. Uh, like a tour, you know, going over by the nice big wasp. Uh, yeah, the name of the aircraft carrier was the wasp, and, uh, but then. Well, we uh, on the way home on this big aircraft carrier, we hit one of the biggest storms <clears throat> on the high seas, the northern part of the Atlantic Ocean. That's the route that they took this uh, aircraft carrier, <clears throat> and this even the aircraft carrier was tossed around. Wow. Because when we landed, the whole front of the of the of the aircraft carrier was pushed in from the waves hitting it so hard. Wow! And I never saw so many guys puking in all my life. <laughs> <laughs> Go away! <laughs> I never got sick though, and I, you know, lucky for me. Yeah. Boy, but that even that aircraft carrier was tossed around. Them guys really suffered that had the had the heaves. <laughs> and what did the guys do? No sooner they get a dollar or something, they play cards or you know or, or shoot dice. That's all you saw was. Crap games all over the deck. Guys shooting crafts and and it was just the first part of the year, first part of the month that they we got paid, so naturally they they got money. They had money to gamble away. One guy got fifty dollars <laughs> before the before the ship took uh, took sail away, he was broke already. <laughs> I says, you damn fool. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no money. What am I going to do? I said, you're going to sit like I'm going to sit. I'm not. I didn't gamble, but I got the 50 bucks in my pocket. You know what? He he coerced me to loan him that 50 bucks. He says, when I get home, I'll give you that 50 bucks back. Uh, well, I felt sorry for the guy, but... And I thought to myself, yeah, you give me 50 bucks back. And you know, when I got home, and he got home, it was in a week or two after I was home, I got that $50 check, he sent it to me. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, guys were like that, you know, or GI for GI, you're not gonna screw him. Who are you gonna screw, a GI? He's just like you. You wouldn't want to be screwed, so same thing. Yeah. So he sent me fifty bucks. 
But that was, and I'd never forget when, as we were entering the New York Harbor, there were a couple of tugboats alongside of us, you know, guiding guiding us to the to the port. And there's that beautiful high statue of liberty right in front of you. What a beautiful sight to see that, you know. And the song that they were playing, if I recall. It was a sentimental song that was real popular at that time, which had to do about, you know, coming home and all that. So it was nice. At last, he said. And they put us on ships. I mean, on, they had the uh, trains all set up for us already, and and someone north, someone south, someone, and, and, and most of them went west. So I was put on a uh, on a train and rode home back to uh, I don't know whether it was Fort Dearborn or Camp Grant, and. Uh, they stripped me of all my equipment, you know, army equipment, except the clothes on your back and the Eisenhower jacket you were allowed to keep. And uh, most of the others, other equipment like fatigue and stuff like that, they took that away from you. Who the hell wanted them anyway after you were all <laughs> here? <laughs> so. So, I didn't cry for that. <laughs> so, then we climbed into our regular clothes and, and took us to a place where we could catch a, a bus home. And I remember, uh, what's that? Getting on the bus, finally getting getting on the bus, and I believe it was in uh, at Camp Grant or so. That took us to a point where I could get a a streetcar with your duffel bag. You know, you had your duffel bag all full of your your stuff and souvenirs. So. There I came, dumped off at 46, 46th and, and California Avenue. Show me the way to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's all gone to my head. On land or or on sea, on land or land or sea, 
You can always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go home. So I was singing that song. Everybody at home is good to see you. Well, they don't know how glad I was to see, see them. Well, it was the best moment of my life, you know, when you come back in one piece and nothing, and not hurt in any way. Some guys didn't like my brother-in-law got killed on Bougainville. He didn't get a chance to come home. That was the sad part of that. Like my, that's when I told you they took my other brother, brother-in-law out of Puerto Rico. <clears throat> because they didn't want anything to happen to them. What's going to happen to them in Puerto Rico? So they brought them back to, to Florida, which was good, you know, because they wanted to, as long as a mother sacrificed once on the these let the surviving son, you know, say just like uh, I had four brothers that were a man myself were in the army. One, my my brother Steve, was older than I. He was in the uh, artillery. In fact, he met my my brother-in-law, Eddie, the one that got killed in Bougainville, at Guadalcanal. And the two of them, you know, exchange greetings and so forth. Mm. And uh, and then there was me. And then my brother Leo was uh, fought in the African war, and uh, he got just discharged for the. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. He got discharged on that, so he didn't. He didn't. Uh, what's that? Well, he, he he wasn't in the service during that. After uh, he got that disorder during during fighting that uh, African war, you know. So. But a good old heart of me, they just kept me. They said, that guy's got, got good stuff. Look at the muscles on him. Keep him. <laughs> <laughs> they kept me. And you got a bronze star out of it, too. Yeah, they gave me a bronze star for surviving. Yeah, that's great. The, the war. Yeah. Yeah. We had a good lieutenant. He was a great guy. Of our unit. I remember... Christmas we spent at the at the uh, well fighting the bulge at that time, and we were guarding a certain point where there were roads, maybe uh, 200, 100 to two hundred yards away from us, 
and we were situated in a, a little house. And I remember at Christmas time, the uh, captain uh, was able to bring us some hot food on the, on the jeeps and with the jeeps and. So we had that, and we had a little wine, and I remember the, our lieutenant even, I got a picture of him somewhere at home. He's got a top hat on, you know, and he's celebrating Christmas with us. <laughs> well, every, everybody was, was, uh, was uh, what you call a, a combat infantry, from the captain all the way, oh, the captain, he's, he was a year, I mean, a, a thousand yards back of us. But the lieutenant was with us all the time. <laughs> In fact, I wouldn't have had his job for no money because he was a point man all the time. He was the one that led. And, uh, and when you lead, you get shot, you know. But he survived. And he was a good guy, too. We had a lot of fun with him. He was one of us, you know. And that's where all of us were, same way. We'd do anything, you know, for each other, that's for sure. Did you uh, keep in touch with any of your Friends from the no, army? No, 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 no. Dummy me, I should have uh, taken their addresses and stuff like that, you know, and uh, and kept a little diary or something. But but they forbid you to do that because they didn't want you to be writing your diary and uh, and putting stuff in there that. Uh, would disclose your position and everything else, see, so they they wouldn't let you keep a diary, so you couldn't. They wouldn't let you do a lot of things when you're writing home, too, same thing. Just tell your wife how much you're, you love her, and that's, that's about it. Yeah. And I always wait for the Jeep to come with the with the mail, get the old mail call, and spend time reading them over and over and over again. Yeah. So when you got home, did you start working right away? Oh yeah. Uh, my dad worked. Was a suit. I told you that he was a soap maker. And my brother, oldest brother Joe, who was withheld from the service since all the other four boys were in the service. So he was held back as a uh, one that, you know, would be to carry on, you know, with the name and so forth. So he was held back. And he worked uh, at the same place my dad did. And he was a supervisor in their, what the soap department called, finishing department where, where they had 
big mills that uh, ground those dry chip, chip flakes into with adding the, the right the right amount of moisture, you made chip flakes out of liquid moisture, liquid soap. You made chips on it that ran through a dryer, and chips came out of it, and then they milled that into uh, what they call well, into actually soap, where they added all their ingredients like soap and. Uh, all the other stuff that they put in there to preserve it and all that. And uh, my brother Joe was a supervisor in that uh, in that department. My dad was working at the uh, in the soap department. They're making soap, and there are no bro no brothers left. And of course, my younger brother, the one that got that PT PTSD. When he got home from there, he met a girl where he was working for a, for a manufacturing firm. And he met a girl over there, and uh, it was diabetic to begin with. And he met her, and, and he got married while he was still in service. And she didn't last at it. The year past 40, with that diabetic, you know, condition that she had. What her he is with four kids. Mm. So it was rough going for him. He was working two jobs, poor guy. You know. But he took care of him and he, you know, they all grew up. But like they say in French, c'est la guerre. You know what that means? No. That is war. Mm. So when you got back, did you start working at the soap company? Well, I, uh, for a whole month, <laughs> I did nothing <laughs> until my honey says, left. Do you think you ought to go to work, get a job? <laughs> <laughs> you said no. <laughs> well, after a month, I think I said oh, no. So I said, yeah, yeah I think so. Huh? I think I'll just uh, look for a job. So I, I didn't look far. I figured, what the hell? I got two brothers and my father working at Allenby Rizzi Soap Company. I'll see what I can do over there, you know. So unbeknownst to my father or to my brothers, I, uh, I took a streetcar and went to the to the company's office. Saw the personnel manager, and uh, no trouble at all. I got a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
no problem. So with my high school education and my, my senior year, I had chemistry. So that landed me a job with the with this company, with the Allen B. Rizzi Soap Company and their uh, laboratory, soap laboratory, uh, analyzing uh, competitor soap bars and what they uh, consisted of, uh, what ingredients were in there, what filler was in there, because a lot of bars have filler in it, you know, instead of uh, soap fatten in it, which makes up soap. So uh, we used to turn them bars, you know, apart and, and then uh, test any material that came in, like sulfuric acid. I used to climb on top of a uh, tank car that had sulfuric acid with a siphon uh, hose and uh, and it was like a little gadget, which I just somehow uh, uh, put it into the tank. It had a long hose. You put it into the tank car at the top and, and sucking up for a sample to see whether or not it had the, the right strength to it, you know, mm -hmm. that they weren't giving you some crap or anything like that. So I'd bring it back to the lab, and we'd analyze it to see it, whether it was the good stuff. And then any other uh, job that uh, that they gave you, you know. And then every hour on the hour, we used to test the moisture of the uh, flakes as they came off a dryer, because it's the uh, hot soap fat fed into what they call a dryer, which spread it along a, oh, maybe an eight foot. That's how wide the dryer was. And as it, as it landed on this thing and started going to a dryer, it broke up into little flakes, which then were put into big bins. And then they were taken over to over to the what we call the soap finishing department where all the other ingredients were put into it like perfume which we made an awful lot of perfume soap and uh, let them uh, you know we, we used to analyze it and uh, <clears throat> so I I stayed there about I don't know Oh yeah, and I had the graveyard shift too. Oh, so it was from eleven to seven. But I had a young guy with me too, because they wouldn't let you work alone, you know. Yeah. So the young guy worked with me, and down just below us was what we call a nurse's room. They had nice beds there. So instead of the both of us, you know, staying awake, that. That was no work. I mean, hey. <laughs> so uh, we we took turns sleeping downstairs. Well, you took you, you took uh, care of the stuff upstairs, you know. <laughs> so that worked out real well. Yeah. So from there, 
they put together a what they call a quality control. So when you're working and you got a job, they keep track. They keep track of you know whether whether you're a laggard or you're a hustler or not. Anything. When I was up there working, I was working. So this quality control guy, they hired a quality control guy. So he had his eye on me, so evidently he had first dibs on me or what, but he said I want Wally to work for me. Okay, you got him, so I worked for him. And there I made a lot of contacts because I would sample everything that came in through that receiving door. I worked with purchasing agents and uh, and foremen from the various departments, like the perfume department, all that. And I worked with uh, from that job from from the quality control. The uh, assistant to the president president of the company, he got his eye on me because I was doing my job. He got his eye on me and he drafted me to uh, what they call that department, product development, where we I, I assembled all the necessary parts to developing a new product. So you work with purchasing agents, you work with uh, what they call those guys that uh, carry a timer on you all the time. Production control, not production, maybe production control. Yeah, yeah, those guys, you know. So you work with them, get to, you get all the facts together, what the perfume chemist for for the foreman in the plant and the purchasing agents. And you get to know these guys and before and, and before you know it why well, you catch the eye of the guy that was the assistant to the president. So he didn't he didn't uh, was that uh, way too long or anything? He just said, "I want Wally to work with me." So fixed up a little office for him, for me, and I graduated to production development. So I would again do the job that I was doing before, get all the power parts together in order to make new products for the company. I'd, I'd work with the designer, first of all, uh, which is an artist that would cut out, if it's a carton or something like that, he'd cut, cut, you know, cut out a carton or anything else. And then you go to the production control guy who's, who's actually a timekeeper, you know, and get his, his uh, take on the time, how much is going to take on the line to do this job, you know, 
to to make this carton and so forth, and get his time, and all their various purchasing agents, you know, the corrugated purchasing agent, the label purchasing agent, and you get to know these guys. And I was a bowler. That helped too, you know, with uh, getting getting in with the so-called crowd, you know. So uh, before you know it, they had a six-man, sixteen-team bowling league. That's how, how active that you know that company was. Yeah. So I was bowling on that team, and I I was averaging around 170 or 175. My highest one that I ever bowled scratch was 257. That's pretty good. No, I've never bowled 300. I'd have a big big sign in front of the house if I ever did. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to pay any money at all, you know. The company picked up the tab for everything. They give you shirts. They gave you. They paid for the bowling and and uh, any other expenses that you might have pertaining to to the bowling uh, thing. So the, the five guys on the uh, in the in the in the industrial league, and one guy would always drop out with the lowest average. And then the one guy from the 16 teams would go up to that to that point. See, so naturally everybody was trying to be the top bowler, you know, in the league. So I was fortunate to be once, once, once to get in that league, or and I stayed in there for a while, for oh maybe a couple seasons before I got kicked out, you know, by another guy coming in and doing it. So that's how they used to work it. But it didn't cost you anything, see. So yeah, it was, a, it was an incentive. That's for sure. Yeah, that's great. So aside from that, they had a baseball team, you know, softball, that which they called the Softball Industrial League, and uh, I was a ball. I was I was playing both softball and so. It was no problem for me to you know get on that. Uh, Again, the industrial uh, team teams, you know, one of the one of the team, what they call industrial league, mm. to get on that, you know. So I stayed on that for a while because of the fact that I was a, a fairly good ball player, but I was uh, on that for a while, and uh, and then I don't know when. Oh, when I turned 35 years old, I found out that uh, I can't play ball all of a sudden anymore, you know, because usually uh, before, after, when the baseball season started, when you were in your 30s, low 30s, well, you, you'd play one game and you'd work out all the kinks. And you were, and you felt good, you know. But when I hit 35, I played one game. They didn't kick out; they stayed. <laughs> I said, "It's time to quit." <laughs> so, 
so there's that story it was, you know. Yeah. But um, it was a good good it was a good company that I worked for, that's for sure. And I had no no problems whatsoever with with anybody. If I wanted anything I could pretty well get it because uh, they knew who I worked for. So they cooperated very nicely with me <laughs> and, and it made my job a heck of a lot easier that way too. But it was fun working with an artist. With first you, you work with a, uh, what, or what, what, actually an artist, so to speak, where he designs the package. And then you take that package and you show it to the industrial to the industrial control guy to get the timekeeper. You show it to him, and he he goes through the motions of uh, how it's going to go on a line and uh, and how much time it's going to take and everything. So he does all that. Then when he's through with it, then you take it down to the uh, he makes. Uh, uh, they make a, what they call a, uh, a sample. The artist carves out a sample. And he takes it down to the uh, die maker and shows it to him. I take it to him and show it to him to see if he can, if there's any problems in uh, laying it up on a, on a die board that will cut out maybe 10 Ten cartons at a time, and the die man he'd look at it, you know. And he says, "Yeah, I think this will work okay." So I go back and I gather all that stuff together in order to come out come out with a product, and that's why they call it product development. So, did you stay with that soap company until you retired? No, I got. Uh, in working in this product development, one of the purchasing agents was uh, quitting and going to uh, uh, California to work for some big outfit out there, I forget, some big uh, perfume outfit, and working. Evidently, you know, moving them with all expenses paid and everything. <clears throat> so, doing the job that I was doing, why they asked me if I would like to take his job. I says, "Oh yes, very much so." <laughs> so, I took his job as purchasing agent and. And I stayed there until, uh, let's see, where did I go? Oh, yeah, the company, after several years, the company, one of the big shots made a big mistake because what they used to do is they used to bid on futures, so-called futures, which, uh, for on fats and oils. And he made a huge one of the, in fact, it was one of the Risley boys made, made a huge mistake by bidding on some futures. Well, and uh, and then of course, you, when you bid on futures, you keep it. 
when the when the, when there was a big drop in the uh, in the in the price of fats and oils, and from then on, we never recovered from that after that because it wasn't it wasn't long that Purex Corporation took us over, and uh, I get to I got to you know then. Uh, Working for a new, well, the, the the president was still there, and the RISD people, and uh, so I got the job as a purchasing agent, and in that job, you meet lots of people, outside people, and we we heard word came that. The Purex Corporation, who just took us over in, first, in several months, was kind of planning moving the whole operation down to this place in, in Taunton, Massachusetts, where they had facilities there. Same thing that they had, you know, here in Chicago. So there I was, you know, on a, between the fence and the post. <laughs> and. Uh, one of the uh, one of the supply one of the guys that came to see me uh, as I, when I was in that job was uh, well assistant well he he was part buyer of a company and he uh, when he found out that. Uh, they were moving the operation. He, he became a real good customer. I, I mean, a supplier of mine. And uh, when he found uh, when he found out that we were moving down to, to Massachusetts, he uh, said, "We'd like to have you work for us." Yeah, when do I start? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know it was an up-and-coming company. They had what they call a set-up box plant already set up that uh, was in Chicago, and uh, but they didn't have what they call a folding copper, folding carton operation. You know those cartons that uh, little. Oh, things go in and you close it, and mm -hmm. it's carried and it holds articles or something in it. They were just setting that up, and of course they were going to need a purchasing agent. There you are. This fell right into my hands, <laughs> and the right company too. So I worked for them for almost twenty years wow. before I retired. Yeah. So that was part two of my talk with Walter Guzzi. I will be back next week with the third and final installment of our talk. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you then.